appropriate for the apocalypse, isn't it? Soundtrack for the end right there. We, we may or may not be living in the last times, but that video feels like it. So in this series, we're studying the book of Revelation, uh, a mysterious, opaque book that has been interpreted in, in many different ways over the centuries. And, and last week I talked about how as a child growing up in the 80s and 90s, I saw Christian you know, TV preachers, televangelists selling books about how, oh, this is Russia and this is America. And, and, and they would have their own timelines for the end of the world. And they would, they would just make their own specific predictions and sell books. And even uh, yesterday, I was finishing up the sermon. I was thinking about the 80s and the 90s. No kidding. Last night, I had a dream that our worship, plan, our, our worship band played Def Leppard. During the, I had 80s on the brain. I th- that would have been cool. Matt could definitely do that. He, I've heard him play Van Halen and all this kind of stuff, but I think it was better today. Didn't they do a good job today? And uh, we love our folks here, but I just had 80s on the brain, I think, getting ready for this, uh, this sermon. But and, uh, interp- uh, Revelation has been interpreted in so many different ways throughout American history, and especially in times of great turmoil and chaos and uncertainty and fear about the future. Revelation has come into play again where people start thinking, man, it's getting so wild out there. It's getting so crazy. Is this the end? And, and, and now we see in our own time the political division and, and the economic fear now and, and the, you know, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and mass gun violence and violent rhetoric and more extreme political rhetoric. UC Davis conducted a survey last month and found that 50% of Americans listen to this, think there's going to be a civil war in the next few years. <laughs> and, I, you know, when, when, when fears and, and the rhetoric and the extremism get stoked to the extent that so many people believe it, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. How many of you realize how important it is now to work for peace? Like this connect group we're in right now, talking about peace? That's the kind of time that we are living in. We have had some rights taken away. There are folks thinking about whether we're headed towards the handmaid's tale here, depending on how things go. We have elections coming up, and we don't know what we're going to face. And the last, Jesus said in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And, and we don't know if we're in the last days or not, but it certainly feels like the love of many is growing cold. Like there's just so much hatred and, and viewing each other as enemies. And there are important issues that we face where we need to stand up and be counted, like no other time, perhaps. That's what our, our mission trip is about, that, that you're going to sign up for at the end of the service. But at the same time, we don't have to hate. We don't have to, we don't have to answer hate with hate. And so in times like this, we need guidance, and we need honesty and transparency, and we need probably most of all hope. And perhaps hope will surprise us from the pages of this ancient letter originally written on a, on a scroll apocalyptic literature, and you remember from last week, apocalypse doesn't mean the end, it means to take the lid off of something, to uncover something, to show something that was previously hidden, to pull back the curtain and say, no, this is really what's going on. I know what it looks like on the outside, but here's what's really going on. That's what apocalypse or revelation means, and apocalypse and revelation are are synonyms. They mean the same Thing. So in this series, we're talking about those old familiar questions, the mark of the beast and 666 and the return of Christ, the millennium, the last judgment, the four horsemen, the apocalypse, Armageddon, all those things. And at the same time, we're going to see how revelation is relevant in every generation, not only to our world, but how it speaks to your life 
personally. So today we're going to look at the churches that Revelation was originally sent to in Revelations chapter, or Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There are seven churches. We're only going to have time to cover three. But Revelation originally was a letter sent to seven churches that existed at that time. So we're going to look at those chapters, and then after the service today, you're going to have the opportunity back at the name tag table to sign up for this Border Connections trip, this experience, to go down to Nogales, Mexico in October and, and learn about the situation that's happening there with asylum seekers. And then we're going to have some table talks after that over the next few months and some opportunities to get involved locally as well. So we're essentially launching our missions ministry beginning today here at the end of the service. So right now, maybe you are in a time in your life, a season of your life, that is more difficult than some other times. We're not going to have a show of hands, but maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a time of life right now that is, that is a, a more difficult time. And if that's you, maybe you could use some words of comfort. And you're going to hear that today as we read the words of Jesus to these churches. Now, maybe you're in a time in your life when things are going pretty well for you, actually. And, 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 and you're pretty comfortable right now. And for you, you might hear some words of challenge today as we read the words of Jesus. Because what Jesus does in, in this letter to these seven churches is he comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. How many of you heard that, that statement before? For those who are hurting and having a difficult time, Jesus, this, this magnificent figure who appears to John in Revelation, puts his right hand on John and the first words out of his mouth from last week are what? Do not be afraid. And he comforts people who are hurting. And at the same time, he challenges those who are doing well. And we can ask this morning, you know, where am I in life? How does this apply to me? If Jesus were to send me a text, if he were to pull out his phone and send me a text, what would Jesus say to me right now? And you might get an idea of that today. So, all right, most scholars believe that Revelation was written around 95 A.D., and to Christians living in what was called Asia at that time, it's modern-day Turkey. And the Christians there were beginning to experience sporadic persecution. They were under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the emperor at that time was Caesar Domitian, who was a megalomaniac. He insisted that the Roman Senate call him Lord and God. That's an ego right there. And, and that's the kind of guy he was, and he, and he demanded worship, emperor worship. There might be a temple to the local god in any city, and right next door there was going to be a temple to Domitian. And you would offer incense to the local god, whoever you worshipped, and you would go next door, and you would offer incense to Domitian. And that was fine for 90-some percent of the population. But there were people who could not offer incense to the emperor and, and say that the, they, uh, they were expected to say, kudios kaiseros. You want to say that with me? Kurios kaiseros. Kind of roll your tongue. Kurios kaiseros means Caesar is Lord. And they said, we can't say that. Why? Because they said, kurios Iesus. What does that mean? Jesus is Lord. And so they couldn't worship the emperor. And they found themselves in the Roman Empire being excluded from Unions, essentially, trade guilds, because part of being a good patriotic Roman and doing business, playing ball with each other was you're supposed to show your, your loyalty, to the, uh, loyalty to the empire and the emperor and burn incense to the emperor and say Caesar's Lord. And, and these Christians couldn't do that. And so these, we showed this last week, these churches here in Revelation are right here. This is, what, this is modern day Turkey. 
uh, Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And then these churches are right here on the edge of what is now Turkey. And we can, we'll zoom in here in a moment and I'll show them to you. But John, who writes Revelation, was probably a pastor who, who led churches in this area. It's, it's possible that he actually ran a little circuit and that he pastored all seven of these churches because they're organized in a circle. And each, each church is about 30 miles apart, which is about a day's journey where he could, he could travel a little more than a day, but he could travel and go visit these churches and, and kind of and, and be their pastor and run the circuit. And apparently the local authorities thought, well, the way you can persecute Christians and disperse Christianity is you cut off the head, you get rid of the pastor. And so he was exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, 37 miles off the coast there. And then Revelation is this visionary experience he has, and he sends it in a letter back to these seven churches that existed at the time. Let's go ahead and zoom in on these churches. And you see there's Patmos off the coast, and then the church at Ephesus, and then Smyrna and Pergamum. In Revelation, these churches are listed in the order that you would travel around the circle. Just like he's thinking in his mind, okay, first Ephesus, and then Smyrna. And maybe this is the circle that he actually walked as he pastored these churches. And, and so he has an experience of the risen Jesus as he's exiled on this island, giving him messages that he sends to these churches. And we said last week, when we read Revelation, we are reading somebody else's mail. Of course, that's true of the letters of Paul. We're not reading uh, pieces of literature that were, that were written directly to us. We believe they have a relevance to us. But we are reading somebody else's mail because they were letters sent to these real people who existed at this time. And we're going to cover three of these churches today. I'm going to show you a video interview about the missions work that we're going to launch today. And so the, the sermon today will be in two parts. But we're going to cover three of these churches. And as we talk about these, I want you to ask yourself these questions. Do I see myself in these churches in any way? As Jesus speaks to these churches through John, do I see myself? How do the messages to these churches speak to me? What do, what do they mean for me in my life? And, and, and let these words of Jesus either comfort you or challenge you or both. And so let's start. First, uh, the church in Smyrna. We're not going in order, just for sermon purposes, but uh, this is the, the, third, the second church that John writes to the church in Smyrna. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We'll come back to that. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So first of all, the reference to Jews in the synagogue of Satan. There are statements in the New Testament where there is... There is essentially an argument between Jewish Christians and Jewish non-Christians about who the Messiah is. And all of the earliest Christians were Jews. Jesus was Jewish. 
And so when we read some of these statements, we're looking back into time, and we're living post-Holocaust, when they never dreamed that Christians would be a, a majority and that some kind of violence would be committed towards Jewish people the way that it has been throughout the centuries and in the Holocaust. And so it's really important when we read statements like that, we're reading it basically an intra-family argument as we read somebody else's mail. This particular statement really doesn't, it's, it's not as bad as it looks because it was a way of saying though being a Jew was a good thing, but there are people who are faking it. They're fake religious people and they're criticizing and slandering where they shouldn't. It doesn't, it still looks bad. But it's just an opportunity to say, when we read about Jewish people in the New Testament, Jesus was Jewish. Peter was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. There is no place for a Christian, in the life of a Christian, for anti-Semitism. There is no place at all for that kind of hatred. It's disgusting garbage. And we don't want to promote that here. We're reading a family argument. So I just wanted to say that quickly. Now, when Jesus said that he died and came to life again, he might be identifying with Smyrna's history. Smyrna had declined and almost disappeared as a city a few centuries prior to this. And some people compared Smyrna to the the mythological bird that rises from the ashes. And it's called the phoenix. Don't you feel good just saying that? Oh, there's kind of a reference in the Bible. People who are watching online are like, what? Who cares? I'm, I'm in Illinois. It doesn't mean anything to me. But so Smyrna had been compared to the phoenix that rises out of the ashes. They had died and come to life again. And, and their citadel was compared to a crown. It's the way that it looked. And so Jesus promises a crown of life to them if they endure. And Jesus empathizes with his followers in Smyrna. To empathize with somebody is to identify with their suffering. To enter into their suffering and to feel that with them. There was a study done by Baylor University a few years ago that found that 75% of Americans view God in a negative light. They see God as either authoritarian or critical or distant. Think about how that might affect our politics, by the way, if God is an authoritarian. So 75% of Americans see God as an authoritarian or somebody who's critical or distant. Only 13% of people under 30 saw God as benevolent and involved in our lives in a positive way. So for Christians, Jesus is God. And in this passage, Jesus empathizes with the people of Smyrna. Jesus doesn't critique the church in Smyrna. So if Jesus were to send you a text message, what do you think he would say? Do you think he would be critical of you? Or do you think like, Maybe the people of Smyrna, Jesus might not critique you. Jesus might say, you know what, you've been through enough. And he might comfort you and empathize with you, because that's what he did with the Christians in Smyrna. He, he empathized with them for two reasons, their afflictions and their poverty. That they were hurting, they were hurting under persecution, and they were poor, they were struggling financially. How many Americans can identify with that? People who are hurting in some way, they're, they're worked ragged, they're having trouble paying for health care, they're dealing with COVID-19 or the after effects, and they're hurting economically. How many Americans could identify with that? And to people who are in those circumstances, Jesus did not criticize them. Jesus offered no critique to the people of Smyrna. He just comforted them and empathized with them. You know, there are people I know who have been through a lot in life. And they're good, decent people. 
they have a good heart. They give of themselves, they're, they're generous, even if they don't have a whole lot. I know people who, are, who have been missionaries and they sold everything they had and they went to serve somebody else or, or they work for a nonprofit and they know they're underpaid and overworked, but they, just, they do it because it, it means something. They want to make the world better or they volunteer or people who take care of family members who are sick, people who are just, they're just good-hearted people and, and they don't make a lot of money or people who are going through health problems, but they don't, they don't complain about it. They, they put on a smile and they go about their life and they do what they need to do and they provide for their family and they're just good, loving people. And I think there are a lot of people who need to hear a comforting message from Jesus. And a lot of times you don't hear that in church. A lot of time it's do this, do that, do better. And you can get into the try and fail guilt cycle if you listen to enough sermons. We're always trying and failing to do better somehow. There's some nebulous better and then you just kind of feel guilty. And that's where you get this religious guilt complex. And, and then you can start to hate yourself. And then that's just hard to deal with. And so you project that onto the world and then you become a fundamentalist. I'm no psychologist, but I think it's how it works. You, start, you hear all these negative messages all the time, and that's it, and you hate yourself, but you can't do that, so you project it onto the world, and then all of a sudden, I'm holy, and everybody else is going to hell, and, and then you get religious wars and violence and all the kind of things that we're seeing today. But perhaps, to some of you, Jesus would say, you know what, you suffered enough. I don't have anything to criticize you about. How cool would that be? To get that kind of message from Jesus. And Jesus says to the people of Smyrna. You've been faithful in spite of your suffering, and even though you feel poor, in the eyes of this world you are, you are actually rich. In God's economy, in God's eyes, Jesus would say like this, you have treasure in heaven. We have that up on the screen for you. You're not rich in this world, but you are rich. That's a way of saying, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've done well. You did good. What if Jesus would say that to you this morning. And whatever it is you brought in, or you're watching online and you're, you're carrying afflictions and poverty, so to speak. And if Jesus were to say to you, you know what, I don't have anything to criticize you about. You've been faithful. You've done a good job. Well done. You are rich in God's eyes. You have treasure in heaven. Perhaps to some of you, that's the message God has for you this morning. And I just think that's important. That's why I wanted to start with Smyrna. Because for some of you, that's where you are, and that is the message that Jesus would say to you. All right, moving on to the church in Ephesus. It's not so good for the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. So let's read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. You have forsaken the love you had first. This is the famous line, you've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I love that phrase. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I have a, a photo here. This is the theater in Ephesus. This theater seats 25,000 people. This is amazing now, right? let alone for the ancient world. 
Um, artists like Sting and Elton John and Ray Charles have performed in this theater. How amazing is that? This theater was built in the ancient world in Ephesus. Ephesus was a magnificent city in the ancient world. The ruins of Ephesus are still impressive. The temple of Artemis is one of the, the wonders of the world. It was the capital city of Asia, this whole area, which is now just Turkey. And this theater is just an example. And so Jesus now, he's not speaking to the, the poor and afflicted followers of Jesus in Smyrna anymore. Jesus is talking to the people who live in like the place, the cool place in Ephesus. And Jesus tells the Ephesian church that if they repent, which means to, to turn around, to change your mind, you've been thinking one way, and so let's do a U-turn and now think the other way. That's what repent means, to turn around and come back home to God that he'll give them the right to the tree of life. That could be a reference to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus where there, there was a sacred tree inside of that temple. It could be a reference to the local area. And so Jesus commends the, the Ephesian church for its orthodoxy, its right belief. They have their theology down. You know, they're, they're educated in the scripture. But Jesus criticizes them by saying that the love that they had at first has grown cold. They've left their first love. That somehow they, they, they have some theological things right. I mean, for the most part, I guess. But when you look at the, the Ephesian church, you don't necessarily think, oh, those are loving people. Those are people who love each other. Those are people who love the community. Those are people who show, who show the love of Jesus to the world. Now, Jesus warns them. This is a really big deal to Jesus. And he says, if you don't get back to your first love, the love that you used to have, the love that you used to show, I will remove your lampstand, which is a symbol for these churches. I'll remove the spirit from your church, and your church will cease to exist. And if you visit Ephesus now, you'll notice that there are no active Christian churches in Ephesus now, at least not that I'm aware of. The, the light did go out in Ephesus. We know that there was a church there at least until 475 AD because there was a church council held there, but there's no Christian presence in Ephesus now. So a church can, can at least kind of have right theology or right beliefs, but they don't love people. They don't love like God loves. And so I wonder if this is a, a message that the church in America needs to hear. Do you think so? Is it possible that this message of Jesus to the church in Ephesus is a, church that the church, a message that the church in America desperately needs to hear? Here's the time we're living in. We have witnessed the resurgence of white Christian nationalism in the United States and in American churches. The most popular source about, about Christian nationalism was written by sociologists a few years ago, and it's called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. And they say Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civil life. In other words, it's the idea that Christianity should, should be fused with the government. 
that, that this should be a, a state religion, that Christianity should be the official state religion, and that the, that the U.S. government should enforce Christianity. And, and in interviews on television, these guys have put it a little bit more bluntly. It's the belief that America should be ruled by white Christians, <laughs> that God gave America to white Christians. That's what white Christian nationalism is. And as ridiculous as that is to say out loud, we are seeing the resurgence of that in the United States. Now, it's important to point out that the founders of this country actually left countries that had state churches. And they intentionally did not want to be America, uh, America to be a country where there was an established religion that forced religion through the government onto the population. The founders of America wanted the opposite of that, by the way. But there are folks now who say, no, that's not what the founding fathers wanted. This is a Christian nation. And, and, and so now there are folks in this movement that feel a loss of power and are even willing to turn violent. So you saw in the, in the intro video at the Capitol on January 6th, people attacking police officers and breaking into the Capitol and trying to apparently overturn an election. And, and there are mass shootings now where the perpetrator pu published a, a white nationalist manifesto before going and killing people of color. A guy in my home state of Ohio a couple of weeks ago tried to shoot up the FBI building in Cincinnati because he believes the propaganda put out by, by Christian nationalist politicians. There are people who, who, who have traded their love for Jesus, for love for nationalist politicians. And, and so it's certainly not Christian. And then the nationalism part is the belief that human beings can be divided into nations, which means people groups, that are often ethnically defined, and that there is a pure race or a pure people group who should be in power. Now, we all know that's ridiculous, but we're not the first ones to know that that's ridiculous and who have had to speak against this kind of thing. So the famous author of Animal Farm in 1984, George Orwell, wrote Notes on Nationalism in 1945, and he wrote this, Nationalism is power hunger tempered by self-deception. By nationalism, I mean, first of all, the habit of assuming that human beings can be classified like insects and that whole blocks of millions or tens of millions of people can be confidently labeled good or bad. But secondly, and this is much more important, I mean the habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or other unit, placing it beyond good and evil, and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests. And so Orwell says, first of all, it's ridiculous because you're classifying human beings like insects. It's just, this doesn't work. And this is before DNA testing, when he realized that, and others did, of course. But then he says, what's even more insidious, if at least as much as insidious, is that people who hold to this kind of a view tend to think that they're above the law, that they can do whatever they want to do because their race is, is the best, superior, and so it's okay if they take other people's lives. It's okay if they overturn election. It's okay if they do violence to other people because it's their right. God gave this country to them, and, and so they, are, they view themselves as above the law. Orwell wrote this at the end of World War II. The last time, at least maybe one of the last times, that we dealt with such a, a, a nationalist movement like this. 
Now, again, this was before DNA testing, and, and I need to say this. I support multiculturalism. I support diversity. I believe there's strength in diversity. I think America has proven that. The best of America has proven that. And so when people say, well, I don't see color or I'm colorblind, no, that's not really the goal. The goal is not to pretend that, that, we, that we're not diverse. The goal is to be proud of who you are and share your culture, share your background, and to appreciate that about each other and learn from each other. That's the best of multiculturalism. Be proud of who you are and share it. And that all of us can learn from each other and we're all made better by multiculturalism and diversity. And at the same time, DNA testing has revealed that we are all a mixture of all kinds of DNA. And so if you do like a 23andMe, how many of you have done some of those DNA tests? They'll go back maybe a few generations. And, and you can, and you can you know, see the results of your tests and, and you can see, well, I'm, I'm 50% Irish or you know, whatever it might be. And you can kind of celebrate that good. Be proud of that and celebrate who you are. The reason that they don't go back a lot farther is the farther you go back, it's just not fun anymore. Because we're all so similar that it doesn't really make any difference. And as a matter of fact, modern science has, has essentially found through DNA that we all come from Africa. The only argument now is where in Africa do we come from? And so there was a study back in 2019 that, that found evidence that, uh, that homo sapiens can be traced to what is now Botswana about 200,000 to 130,000 years ago. It had the, the, fr the largest freshwater lake in Africa at the time. And modern humans arose during that time in that fertile environment. And then as climate change gradually happened, we began to migrate as that lake dried up. And so, you know, tell that to the guy flying the Confederate flag in the back of his pickup truck. Your ancestors are from Botswana, dude. You know, take the flag down. You'll get better gas mileage without that flag flapping in the back of your truck. You'll pay less on gas. And that gas guzzler you got going on. I drive a truck too, and they're own trucks. But right, I mean, just, we should celebrate our differences. And at the same time, you realize the farther back you go, we are all a mixture of each other's DNA. That's just kind of how the human race works. And, and, and that's science. Now, it's also common sense. We, all, we don't just mate with people who look exactly like us. That's just not how humans work. And so people who think there's this pure race or this pure nation, it's just absolute bunk. It, it's, so it's, it's, it's self-deception, as Orwell said, that there, there's no such thing, first of all. But then you get into this delusion that says, well, because I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the pure group, the master race, then I can act however I want because God's given me the right to do that. Too many churches in America have left their first love. They have traded Jesus for white Christian nationalist politicians. And there is nothing Christ-like about Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is anti-Christ. And the setting of Revelation is, you cannot worship Jesus and Caesar at the same time. Does anybody want to say amen to that? There is nothing Christ-like about Christian nationalism. And I do think that Jesus would say to many churches in America, you have left your first love. You have traded your love for Jesus and your love for fellow human beings for this 
ridiculous, deceptive doctrine that makes you feel like you're in power and it's all a lie and it even defies common sense and it's ridiculous. And if you don't return, repent, and come back home to the God who loves everybody, your lampstand is going to go out. The Christian church in America is not going to survive if the rest of the world only sees white Christian nationalism. That's why churches like this are so important. And we're not just tooting our own horn because there are other churches like us. And we're not perfect. We're not, we're not the one church who gets it right. We're not perfect people. But we want to follow the real Jesus. Not some hijacked, you know, whacked out, you know, wild version of, of Christian nationalism. That's not what we're about here. You can't worship a nationalist political leader who acts the opposite of Jesus and then call yourself a Christian at the same time. Enough of that. How's that for the message to the Ephesians? And maybe the message to many of us. And then this is the last church we'll cover for today, and then I'm going to show this video interview before we sign up for the Border Connection trip. So the church in uh, Laodicea, let's read Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write this, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And everybody said, ouch. <laughs> ouch to the church at Laodicea. He's like, you think you're rich, all the, all the followers of Jesus in Laodicea. You think you're rich, but you're actually poor. This is the opposite message that he gave to the church in Smyrna. He says, you're, you think you have the, all these nice clothes, but no, your clothes are dirty. You need to put clean clothes on. And, and you need to, to get gold that will actually last, the real thing, because you think you're rich. You think you're doing well, but you're just the opposite. To, this, to the Smyrna Christians who were poor and afflicted, and they needed words of comfort from Jesus, gave them words of comfort, and Jesus said, no, you're actually rich in God's eyes. Be faithful. Well done. To the Laodiceans, he says the opposite. No, you think you're rich. You think you're doing well. But actually, you're lukewarm, and you're just kind of going through the motions, and you're the opposite. So, to the church in Laodicea, Jesus, uh, he afflicts the comfortable. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was a banking center. It was the city uh, of, of great economic pride and self-sufficiency. And Jesus offers no praise to them. He only criticizes them. Because they're people who told everybody that they aced the test. But then when they got the grade back, they found out, no, that's not exactly what happened. It was known for its textile industry, produced wool for clothing. So Jesus calls them naked. 
They were known for their medical school that produced a salve that was applied to the eyes to improve people's vision. So Jesus calls them blind. Uh, after an earthquake in AD 60, Caesar offered relief funds and they refused them. We don't need, we don't need the help. They refused the, the federal disaster relief funding. So Jesus calls them poor and says, you need to buy real gold from me. Now, the most widely known fact about uh, Laodicea is that they could buy everything they wanted except for good water. And the, the water that they had had to be piped in from a long distance away. This is the ruins of an aqueduct that, that, popped, uh, that piped in water, just like an above-ground canal. And the, the water came from Heropolis, but by the time it reached Laodicea, it was cold at the source, but by the time it reached Laodicea, it had become warm, lukewarm. Not good for cooking. It's not hot enough to cook or bathe with, but it's also not cold enough to be refreshing. And so you would take a drink if you've left water out in the hot car in the summertime and you, you open it, oh, it's just like hot water. And you just immediately just want to gag. Jesus says, the Laodicean Christians, you've been like your water, lukewarm. And he's like, if that doesn't change, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. Now that sounds harsh, but he makes it clear. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean to you. He says, you're prideful people who don't realize how needy you are. You don't realize how, quote unquote, blessed you are. And Jesus stages an intervention to shock them and speak to them. And he says, I'm standing outside your door. It's an interesting picture. This is the famous painting, right? You've all seen the, the painting of Jesus. And, and this, this painting, we're talking about nationalism. This, this painting, you know, Jesus looks Swedish. You know, where he's knocking on the door and, and, and we're supposed to open the door and let him in. But he says, I'm standing outside your door and knocking. I'll share fellowship with you. I'll come in and we can, we can share a meal each, with each other. But Jesus says, you have to open the door. You have to welcome me in. Church in Laodicea is a reminder to regularly check your spiritual temperature to make sure you're not lukewarm. To make sure you're not prideful. That you think you're doing great, but you're not. And Jesus says, you know, to them, he's like, you got all the money in the world. Apparently you're not willing to share it. Apparently there are people knocking outside your door and you won't let them in. There are people hurting all over the world and you've got it all together. And you set the standard for wealth and safety, but yet you pridefully slam the door in other people's faces. That's why we donate to food banks. That's why we had a serve day this summer. The day we tried to show a silent video of the footage, our projector conked out. Somebody donated a new projector last week. I'm going to show you that silent video for, from serve day. This is in July when we had a goal of making 50 hygiene bags it would be donated. You can go ahead and play the video if we have it up there. We had the goal of making 50 hygiene bags to give to a local organization so they can share them with people who are experiencing homelessness. And we donated items, all of you donated items, and we gathered in that library over there, and we ended up uh, not making 50 hygiene bags. You made 100 hygiene bags. You doubled the goal. Yeah, you can applaud for that. And at the end of the, of the day... We, they, I guess there were some more supplies that were needed to get to the hundred. And so some of you went out shopping 
and, and, and bought those supplies and ran them back here and, and finished up making all those kits. And the last shot you see is, is the bed of my pickup truck when I drop these, uh, these items off at Azend, which is the organization that donates them to iHelp um, in Chandler. And there's a pickup truck bed full of, of these goods, and Azend was so thankful for that. Max right there, he donated part of his allowance to buy uh, supplies to donate. That's why we do things like that to check our spiritual temperature. See, when you have wealth, when you have comfort, it breeds paranoia and apathy to where you think somebody's going to come and take it from you and to where you, you start to lose compassion for people who don't have it as good as you. And Jesus, he has harsh criticism for the Laodiceans who would let their wealth breed apathy and paranoia. They wouldn't even let him in. He was outside knocking and they wouldn't let him in. And so one of the ways that we check our spiritual temperature is we ask ourselves, how do we treat the least among us, the marginalized people who are hurting all over the world? It's okay to believe in laws and borders and all that kind of stuff. It's okay to have your own political views, all those things. The laws of our country, actually, a lot of people don't realize this. We have laws that welcome asylum seekers to come here. That, that's legal for asylum seekers to come to our border and ask to come in to escape situations in their home country. And so what we're going to do, and I'm going to show a video here to wrap up the, the service. Uh, what we're going to do here is sign up right after the sermon for a border connection trip where we're going down to Nogales, Mexico. October 1st and 22nd, it's the same trip. It's identical. You can sign up for either, either one of them. There's a 15-person limit, so you want to get back there. Let's not throw any bows or anything. But you can sign up, first come, first serve. There will be a wait list. It's 25 bucks. So you want to go ahead and they're going to collect a fee back there from you. If finances are a problem, just say finances are a problem, and it'll be okay. There's a required 90-minute Zoom training class, September 13th. Minors 12 and up are permitted with a parent or guardian. Uh, the host organization has asked that, we, that anybody who goes has received the COVID-19 vaccine. We're going to travel across the border, so a passport is required. And then after we go on this trip, we're going to come back, have a series of table discussions about what we've experienced. And then there are some opportunities locally that we're going to have to connect with to help people who are knocking at the door. And maybe literally or figuratively, maybe they're here and they just can't knock into the door. They can't get into the door of prosperity in the United States. And we're going to help them as a church. So what I'm going to do now is I interviewed uh, a group of people who are heading up different um, missions opportunities in the well over the next few months, Border Connection Trip and others. I interviewed them and I want to show the interview now. It's a little over 10 minutes long, and, but it's excellent. Um, they speak passionately about what they're doing. That's how we're going to end the sermon. I'll come back up and do the closing prayer, and then we'll sign up for the Border Connection trip. But I want you to hear from these folks about the missions opportunities we're launching here at the well to check our spiritual temperature and to follow the real Jesus and what he wants to do in the world. Let's watch. Well, thank you all so much for being willing to share with us this morning. I've appreciated getting to hear from your hearts here over the past few months as, as we've been talking about uh, the kinds of work that you're involved in, how God has called you, and how God's been working through you, and, and the work that uh, you're going to be sharing with us this morning. And so thank you all for being here. And uh, the question that I'm going to ask each one of you, it's, it's, it's the same question. It's what work are you involved in, and why are you so passionate about it? And I appreciate you sharing from the heart. And uh, everybody here at The Well is going to love uh, hearing the work that, that you've been doing. And uh, I believe that this conversation that we're having right now is an answer to prayer. 
and the work that you've all been doing is an answer to prayer. And, and uh, I'm excited for, for the, the future of all of these things that we're talking about at the well. So I'm going to go ahead and start with Chanel. And uh, Chanel's going to do double duty, actually. She's going she's gonna to speak for herself today. And then she's also going to speak for Nisha. Nisha, it, she, there's Nisha, but Nisha uh, said she's, she doesn't really like public speaking. I think she's great at it, by the way, probably. But um, Chanel is going to share for Nisha as well. And then, and then Sharonda and then Josh. And, and so we're going to hear from all of you uh, in, in a sense today. So Chanel, first of all, um, would you tell us what work are you involved in and why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, so uh, being an educator uh, allows me to fulfill my passion of coming alongside students and families in need. Uh, there are tons of students that come to school each and every day that don't have their basic needs met. Right. So uh, being able to help find those needs, provide uh, for what the students need brings me tremendous joy. It allows kids to just focus on being kids. And so that's my passion. Um, it also brings me great joy to partner with friends like Nisha right down there. <laughs> uh, Nisha, she became a social worker to uh, fulfill her desire to help others. And she often reflects on how. Uh, God, before she even knew Jesus, he was leading her to love on others. Uh, Nisha is currently partnering with organizations like Matthew House, and this organization is based in the East Valley, and it provides services to our refugee and immigrant individuals and families. Uh, Matthew House strives to develop relationships based on friendship and trust, uh, with fleeing people who are uh, fleeing their native homeland due to violence or fear of their um, families being harmed. Uh, these people who have left everything behind to come uh, to a place where uh, they don't know the language, the culture, the norms, or to try to make this home. And so uh, Nisha works hard with Matthew House to provide services such as like one-on-one -on -one tutoring uh, with our school-aged children, uh, language learning for our adults and affordable housing. Uh, they also have teams of people who come together to befriend, to love, to mentor and coach these uh, new immigrants and refugees. Uh, ultimately, we strive to love and treat others as we would have others uh, love and treat us. I'd say Chanel did pretty well there doing double duty. That was, that was great. Well done. Thank you, Chanel, for, for sharing the work that you're involved in and why you're passionate about it. And, and for Nisha and the work that the important work she's in and why she's passionate about it. And Sharonda uh, coming to us from the pyramids of Egypt this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Sharonda, uh, what kind of work are you involved in and why are you so passionate about it? So, um, right now, I am pursuing just learning um, how to facilitate um, conversations. I believe that in the last, uh, you know, okay, four to six, eight years or so, we've become so polarized in everything. Like, there's just extremes in everything. But people are forgetting that um, it's in the nuance of life that life happens, right? So I have taken on, or I believe God is calling me to 
be in rooms, be in rooms where I can be a bridge maker or a bridge facilitator or a peacemaker uh, for reconciliation. Um, discussions and where we find out that we all want the same things in life, right? We're very uh, similar across the board, right? There's only a few things that we may differ in. And in that, we still can find ways to respect each other, love each other, and um, just love on each other like um, like the Bible, like we, we, sh we that like we should do, right? So um, I was able to participate in a trip where I went to tour the Southern states of America with a group of people I did not know. Um, it was very challenging for me as I grew up in the South. Um, and there's a lot of things that have historically occurred um, in the South, in America. Um, so to be able to be in a room and a group of people where we can discuss the history of the United States and look at it at, with different perspectives, but then come out of it with a new view, a new understanding, a new um, view on the world, the perception of why things happen and what has happened and how it relates to today. So I'm excited about it. I'm hoping that um, through these journeys, that again, that we all can see each other um, with, just see each other's humanity, um, be able to love each other and uh, come out with a new and broader view of this beautiful world that God has allowed us to participate in. So. Yeah, thank you, Sharonda. The importance of getting people around a table and talking to each other and learning, and oh my goodness, how, how badly we need that uh, in our society right now. Thank you. And, and Josh, how about you? Well, I'm, I'm glad to be the home, the, the cleanup batter here. Um, right. <laughs> my nine to five, I'm an immigration attorney. Uh, so that affords me the opportunity to work with people from, uh, from across the globe. I do a lot of work with uh, asylum seekers who are here in the United States seeking refuge in, in our country. So in that capacity, I've had the opportunity to work with people recently from Ukraine, uh, worked with a lot of people from um, Africa, uh, people from Asia, uh, but predominantly people from Latin America, Central America, Mexico, and parts of South America so I get to do that on a daily basis, meet people who are um, escaping crisis and are now living in the United States and having to establish a brand new life in a country they do not know, in a language they do not speak, and navigate a very complex legal system that most Americans do not understand. Uh, so I'm very passionate about that, you know, being that uh, point of reference, being that navigator uh, resource for people who are in desperate need of what really is life-saving work. Um, I also um, sit on the board for an organization called Heart for Lebanon uh, that does work among Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Um, they also help local Lebanese families in distress and uh, Iraqi families who are living in um, 
in uh, Lebanon. So I've got to travel there and do uh, work on the ground in, in Lebanon. So my passion is really working with people who are seeking refuge in not only the United States, but different parts of the globe. And the reason that I'm so passionate about that is because the Bible, the Bible is full of stories of God moving his people. Like from, from end to end, we see God not only moving his people, but moving them with purpose and intent. Um, from Genesis, when, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, are exiled from the Garden of Eden. You know, there was purpose in that, like moving them out of there. Then we see the exodus from Egypt um, to the promised land. And then we see God moving the Israelites, you know, here and there. Uh, they're exiled to Babylon and God still says to them, you know, plant crops, build houses, raise families. Um, so we see these stories and then, you know, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had to seek refuge in Egypt. They had to just pick up. Joseph had a dream and they had to leave. And I'm fascinated by that because that makes me think like, what did that look like? Who was there to greet Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in Egypt? Who helped them? Who was there to provide assistance? Because I, I can't imagine that they just picked up and left and, oh, okay, well, we're in Egypt and we're just going to, we're going to plant stakes and, and stay here. So I'm fascinated by that process and what that looked like. And then we even see Jesus, the way that he moved in the Holy Land with, with purpose. And, um, you know, when people, you know, Jews did not associate, you know, with certain people groups, Jesus was the first to go to them and, and, and talk to them. You know, Jews don't go to Samaria. You know, and Jesus said, well, you know what, I'm going to walk through Samaria because he had a very specific purpose because he knew he was going to meet a woman at the at a well there in the middle of the day. And he was going to make her his first evangelist. She was going to go back to her people and talk about this guy, you know, who was water, <laughs> who was water that was life giving. So this, the, the Bible is just full of story of God moving people with purpose. And I think it'd be foolish to think that in 2022, that God stopped moving people with purpose. So we see today, we have thousands of people moving across the globe or coming to our southern border, for example. And I spent a lot of time working and volunteering at the border in Nogales, Sonora, and I can say that 99% or more of the people who arrived tell me the same thing, that it was their faith that got them through the very dangerous journey to our southern border. And so it makes me think, God's working here. And what is his purpose? What story are we writing in 2022 when we are reaching out to people seeking refuge and, and what, what is God trying to illuminate in our hearts and our minds. So it, it's my passion. It's, it's what I love to do. And um, it's the, the, it's the fuel that feeds my soul. Thank you, Josh. I can hear your passion and, and our plan here now to, to join in the work that you've all described is this border connection trip. 
we have coming up on October 1st and 22nd. And then out of that, we're going to go into a series of table talks about that experience and then look for local opportunities to plug in as well as regional or global opportunities like uh, Matthew House and, and others and like schools uh, who are in need of support and, and, and students who are in need of support. And so thank you all so much uh, for the work that you've been involved in, for saying yes to God's call in your lives, first of all, and, and being faithful in that and sharing that with me and, and sharing that with the well here this morning. We really appreciate you. And, and I can't wait to see the amazing things that, that God does through the well because of your work and your sharing. So thank you all so much for sharing with us. Give them a hand. Yeah, they deserve it. It's great. And so after, we're going to say the closing prayer now, and you can go back to that uh, name tag table. Josh is back there, actually. It was in the video, and uh, you can sign up for the trip. If you don't get in the top 15, there's a wait list. Uh, if you do get in the top 15, you want to get your fee paid to him. If finances are a problem, just whisper to him. It'll be all right. And then uh, you're going to see everything else come out of this. Let's pray. God, thank you um, for this church. Thank you for... Uh, this border connection trip opportunity, and then out of that, uh, more opportunities to open the door as you stand at the door and knock, uh, to assist in education here in Arizona, to come along and tutor students or to meet physical needs for students, to teach English as a second language, uh, to donate clothing items, and, or to welcome folks in, in, in various ways. Uh, there are so many ways to serve God, and we thank you for uh, the blessing that, that folks here will get to be to other people. But then also the truth is, oh God, the blessing that other people are to us. And they, God, help us not to become like the Laodiceans, lukewarm. We can check our own spiritual temperature and be on fire for you and on fire in our love for others and the way that you love the world. And God, we can, we can check our temperature against Jesus and the great things that you want to do. And we thank you for that privilege and for the amazing things that are going to come out of this and out of this church. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. 